Well, it is a joy uh, to be with you all this morning. I bring you greetings, uh, as Justin said, from Sterling Park Baptist Church. We're uh, grateful for your partnership in the gospel. We pray for you all often. Uh, and so it's a great joy to be here, to worship with you all, to kind of unite our hearts in singing to our great God. Uh, it's also my honor to open up God's Word with you. So again, as Justin said, if you have a Bible, uh, grab it. We're going to open up to the book of Mark, chapter 4. And this morning we'll be considering verses 35 to 41, Mark chapter 4. And as you turn there, I wonder how often you realize how important true identity is. I mean, that's why you show your ID roughly 37 times before you board an airplane, right? The TSA is paid to make sure you are who you say you are. Uh, If you've been told you need surgery, well, as the patient, uh, most likely you'll want to get to know the surgeon, right? You'll want to make sure he is who he says he is. You want to check his credentials, make sure he's actually qualified to operate on you. Uh, True identity has been the theme of many a good movie, too. So the mysterious Bruce Wayne is actually Batman. Sorry, just putting it out there. Nerdy Peter Parker is Spider-Man, right? These guys' true identities are the points of those movies. True identity is really important. It was really important in the days of Jesus as well. So as Jesus began his earthly ministry, people constantly wondered who he was, wondered about his identity. Even today, there's debate on that, right? You'll hear many things. He was a good teacher. He was an inspirational figure. He was a humanitarian He was a peace-loving hippie, right? You'll hear so many different things about Jesus' identity. Who was Jesus? What was his true identity? Well, in the passage we'll be considering this morning, we see Jesus' disciples asking that very same question. Who are you, Jesus? And I pray that as we ask that question along with them this morning, that we'll understand more about who Jesus really is. So let me read for us Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, and then we'll dig in. On that day when evening had come, he, that's Jesus, said to them, those are his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. There was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, with the time we have this morning to look at this text, uh, I don't have much of an outline for you. So, sorry to you note takers. Uh, Really, all I want to do is go through this story little by little and think about the answer to that question. Who is Jesus? And then at the end, think about what that should mean when we struggle with fear. So, sound good? All right. So we enter this story here after a long, exhausting day in Jesus's ministry. So he's been teaching by a lakeside, drawing huge crowds. Uh, They're so big, in fact, uh, that at one point he has to even jump into a boat to get into the water in order to get a better position to teach. You can see that at the beginning of our 
chapter 4. But here in verse 35, as we pick up that story, the day has come to a close, evening has arrived, and Jesus wants to move on. So he and his disciples get into the boat, uh, and they set off for the other side of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. But we see there that their journey is soon interrupted. Look there in verse 37. Mark writes that a great windstorm arose. So a great storm came upon the boat. So this was not an irregular occurrence on the Sea of Galilee. So as we know even today, that sea rests below sea level and is surrounded by mountains. So if you kind of think like winds can really whip up and descend upon that water quickly. And as a result, there's, there's not only violent wind and rain, but it's also really surprising. It's like it comes out of nowhere. Uh, and so these are the conditions the disciples find themselves here in our story this morning. And think about it. At, at least Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, and, and probably others in the boat were, were experienced fishermen, right? They knew Galilee like the back of their hand. They'd probably seen dozens of storms like this. But here, well, they're freaking out, right? They're at a complete loss. Mark writes that the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So the water was, was crashing into the boat with such rapidity so that the bottom of the boat was beginning to accumulate water and sink deeper and deeper into the waves. I mean, for, for those of you who are like me, who kind of grew up hearing this story and seeing this story on flannel boards, I mean, it feels pretty familiar, right? But, but just put yourself in this story for a little bit. Think how crazy this is. I mean, our blood pressure should start to rise as, as we imagine this chaos and, and utter panic that they're facing. So time's running short. The boat can only handle so much more. The waves are getting higher. The wind is howling around them. So what are they going to do, right? We're at this point in the story. We're like, well, okay, what, what, what comes next? Well, there in verse 38, they do what we would hope they would do, right? They turn to Jesus. But where do they find him? I mean, is he frantically at the front of the boat trying to bail water out as fast as he can? Is he yelling for those other boats that we see were there with him? But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. <laughs> really, Jesus? Asleep? The boat is rocking back and forth. The waves are crashing. The disciples are fearing for their very lives. And Jesus is sleeping? I mean, sure, it had been a long day, but come on, right? Can you, can you imagine what the disciples must have thought at that moment? Well, we don't have to imagine much because they shouted out at the end of verse 38, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's an understandable question, right? I mean, they're all about to die, and Jesus is sleeping. So they rebuke him. This is no time for sleeping, Jesus. Aren't you worried? Don't you want to help us? Do you even care? I wonder if you can remember ever asking Jesus that kind of question. Do you see my struggle, my fear? Do you care? So what does Jesus do? Well, he gets up. He sees the situation. But instead of joining in to bail out the boat, he simply stands up and speaks. Not to the disciples, not to answer their question. No, he speaks to the storm. 
Verse 39, peace, be still. The sense of the language here is of Jesus rebuking the storm, muzzling the forces of nature assembled against him, forbidding the storm to speak any longer. That last imperative, Jesus says, comes with an added punch in the original language. In a sense, he's saying, be still and stay that way. And what's the result? I mean, anybody can say that to a storm, right? Verse 39. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Imagine. One second, you're yelling at the top of your lungs, trying to coordinate some effort to save the boat. You're hoping for some sort of miracle, something that might preserve your life, but your fear's overtaking you. You're starting to panic. And then in a split second, Jesus stands up, speaks, and there's utter calm. The rain stops. The wind ceases. What were the disciples thinking? What was running through their heads at that moment? Joy? Relief? Maybe some of them fainted? Well, Jesus turns to them, and he asks them a question. So they stand there drenched and shocked, and he says there in verse 40, Why are you so afraid? What a question, right? This passage is full of surprises. Why wouldn't they be afraid? I mean, their lives had just flashed before their eyes. Like we said before, some of them were experienced fishermen. They knew Galilee better than anyone, and yet even they had thought their lives were over that day. So what does Jesus mean to ask, why are they afraid? I don't think Jesus is rebuking them here merely because they're, they're afraid of a violent storm. There's not much that's scarier than that. Now, Jesus is digging deeper into the depths of their hearts, and he's putting his finger on the real source of their fear. Because he adds a second question. Have you still no faith? And do you remember what the disciples had cried out in the storm? They'd seen Jesus asleep, and they'd shouted, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? It was a question we understood when we read it, right? But it was also a question with a piercing note of doubt, wasn't it? Jesus, are we to drown for all you care? The disciples had seen Jesus in action for quite a while by this point. In the first four chapters of Mark, they had seen him cast out evil spirits. They'd seen him heal fevers. They'd seen him cleanse leprosy, make a paralyzed man walk, restore a man with a withered hand. They'd seen him claim to be able to even forgive sins. But here in the storm, they doubt him. They doubt his power. They doubt his care. So Jesus, after taking care of that surface-level reason for their fear, the, the storm itself shows them the real reason for their fear, beyond those waves, beyond that wind. The real issue is their unbelief. Have you still no faith? While the disciples begin processing what has just taken place, we see there in verse 40 that whatever fear they had had before, fear of storm, fear of death, we see that fear fade away into a greater fear and awe of who is standing before them. Verse 41, they were filled with great 
fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's a question we asked at the outset of our time together, right? Who is this Jesus? Well, in this great act of power, Jesus was clearly showing his true identity. Because throughout the Old Testament of the Bible, these first thousand pages or so, the only one thing can subdue the sea. Only one person can still the waves. So, a few passages. Psalm 77, verse 16. The psalmist says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The prophet Nahum Chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. His way, that's God's way, is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. You can even think back to how God stopped up the waters of the Red Sea so that the Israelites could escape Egypt, right? And you'll see how the disciples must have been well acquainted with the truth that only God can make a storm disappear. Only God can turn back wind. Only God can speak into chaos and bring about peace. So here, here's Jesus in the midst of a storm, and when they cry to him for help, he doesn't take out a staff like Moses. He doesn't whip out a wand to work some magic. He doesn't even say, I command you storm in the name of... No. He speaks on his own authority, and he directly talks to the storm himself and rebukes it. It's a story strangely like Jesus' encounter with a demon in chapter 1 of Mark. So in that story, Jesus has a man brought to him with an unclean spirit, and the demon begins to declare who he is, his true identity, but Jesus rebukes him and says, Be silent. The demon leaves the man in a much calmer state, and the onlookers stand in awe of Jesus' authority and say, What is this? You see, Jesus addresses this storm in our story. The storm that's threatening to destroy him, and he muzzles it like he had that demon with his sovereign word of authority. The disciples were no match for the storm, but the storm was no match for Jesus. So, friends, do you you see Jesus' identity in this passage? Jesus is God, he has all the divine power of God himself. This man who had taught all day, who had fallen asleep, exhausted in the storm, who had healed the sick and forgiven sins, is revealing yet again that he is God himself. And his disciples see that and they tremble with fear. And so should we. Because if Jesus is God, then we know he is so holy we dare not approach him in our sin. If Jesus is God, And he is so just that he must condemn to death all who would not worship him. Jesus is God, and he's so powerful that he can create the whole earth just by speaking. If Jesus is God, then he's untouchable, unchangeable, not able to be defeated, not able to be ignored or explained away. Don't think we often think of Jesus like this, do we? I mean, we're pretty good at thinking of him as a man of sorrows or a meek teacher. 
or someone who's able to help us with our weaknesses. And those things are all beautifully true. How often do we as Christians stop and think about this great and glorious King Jesus we follow? The King whose word not even a storm can oppose. It is said that the 11th century King Canute of England once wanted to point, make a point about his authority, and so he commanded a chair to be set on the shore as the tide was beginning to roll in. So the waves began to, to swell and creep closer. He sat in the chair, and he spoke to the sea and commanded it not to touch him. But it slowly crept closer and closer until it finally rose up and soaked his feet, at which point his point was clear. And he said, all inhabitants of the world should know that the power of kings is vain and trivial, and that none is worth the name of king, but he whose command the heaven, earth, and sea obey. Christian, meditate on the power of of your king, Jesus. He is, as Paul writes in Colossians, the one by whom all things were created. He is the one in whom all things hold together. He is the one who is the head of all rule and authority. Nothing can thwart the power of this king. Nothing is out from under his complete control and sovereign command. If we kept on reading in Mark's gospel this morning, we discover that this story is just the beginning of a series of stories that Mark strings together to show clearly that Jesus' authority is over everything that might oppose him. Whether it's nature here in our story, or in the next few verses of the next chapter, demonic forces, or the end of chapter 5, even death itself. I wonder, is, is this how you think of Jesus? Is this, the, is this picture of utter magnificence and complete holiness in keeping with your understanding of Jesus? Because if it isn't, then I, I think this story shows you, you have a, a malnourished understanding of the Jesus of the Bible. If Jesus is just a friend to you, a, a pen pal who you write occasionally to pay your respects, if he's an abstract comfort to you in your suffering, someone who makes you feel warm inside, if he's sort of a genie in a bottle that you can just rub the right way if you need something, if, if Jesus is someone you always feel comfortable around, then the Jesus you know is not the Jesus of this story. This Jesus is majestic. He's worthy of all your devotion and worship. He's worthy of your very life. Jesus is not to be trifled with. He's not tame or pathetic or needy or quaint. He's the creator of the world. He's the commander of the storm. In Isaiah chapter 40, God gives us a glimpse of how utterly different he is from us. And he speaks through Isaiah the prophet and says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Friends, if Jesus is God, then these verses describe him. He is so powerful that we need to use this lofty language just in order to try to attempt to describe him. And even that language isn't up to the task. If if you've been in church a while, 
you're familiar with this passage probably. It's quite well known, but, but do you stop and think about what's being said here? God is so great and majestic that he could put mountains in a scale. He is so great that nations, entire countries, are like nothing before him. They're like a drop, like a blink in a bucket, right? Compared to him, they are less than nothing. Can, can you get any powerless and less than nothing? And think for a little bit about the sheer magnitude of how great Jesus is. So we're gathered here this morning. You know, one to two hundred of us. Terrible at estimating numbers. So we're in a, a, a church in a big county, in a, in a large state, in a huge nation, in a gigantic world, on an enormous planet, in a vast solar system that's just a speck in a universe that we cannot begin to understand the scope of. And all of this is so inconsequential compared to God that we talk about him merely holding it in his hand. Church, behold your God. Brothers and sisters, is this the Jesus you worship? Is this the Jesus you go to in prayer? Is this the Jesus you sang songs to this morning? Or is your belief in Jesus one in which you are the center? Church, look to Jesus the one who could control the storm with just a word of his mouth, the one who led his disciples into the storm, and the only one who could deliver them out of it. How might this picture of your Jesus impact the way you look at your fears this week? Because like the disciples, we too are fearful of the storm, aren't we? When confronted with danger or trial or temptation or grief, we are prone to fear, prone to doubt. Personally, I I often fear what God might have in my future. Maybe some of you can relate, especially ways that he might call me to suffer. We see the lives of faithful Christians in my church throughout history. I fear what might be in store for me. When I see Jesus' rebuke in the story, have you still no faith? And I apply that to my fear, I begin to see much more clearly my unbelief, don't I? And when I fear what God might call me to endure, I show that I ultimately don't trust that he's good, that he cares for me. When I fear future suffering, I show that ultimately I think I would be a better God than God. So I wonder what is causing you to fear today, Christian. I wonder what's agitating your heart, burdening you down with dread as you anticipate this coming week. I wonder what are the worries you can't seem to shake, or the storms that are battering your soul. Do you fear loss? Maybe losing your job? Losing a loved one? Do you fear failure? Not being able to support your family? Disappointing people you admire? Do you fear disease, death? Do you fear conflict, broken relationships, what your kids will turn out to be? Do you fear being open about your sin, not looking like you have it all together at church on Sunday mornings? Do you fear asking for help? Brothers and sisters, can you see how your fear is ultimately built on your unbelief? You see how your fears stem from your doubt that God loves you in Christ, that he has your eternal good in mind. 
the disciples asked Jesus if he cared whether they were perishing. How might you be asking the same question? If it's true that Jesus is sovereign over the storm, then it's true that he's led you into that storm. So instead of looking for a way out, how might you be praying that he would care for you in the midst of it and take you through the purpose he has for you? Or is is fear overtaking you? Are your fears like the waves on that Sea of Galilee crashing against your hope in God and threatening your confidence in him? Christian, I think one of the reasons we have so much fear in our lives is that we don't fear enough. Remember the disciples and how their fear of the storm turned into an awe and a fear of the Jesus who was above the storm? Fear him, church. When we fear Jesus above all else, we we run to him for refuge. When we fear Jesus above all else, we seek to find our delight in him and not the passing pleasures of the world. So Christian, when you're tempted to fear lesser things, fear the one who controls all things. He alone is worthy of your worship and awe. Well, is that where we should end this morning? Is the point of this sermon simply that we're fearful people and we need that swift kick to remind us to be less fearful, come back more brave, more trusting in God next Sunday? Well, think back with me one last time to those disciples. As they continued forward to hear Jesus' teaching more in the following days, they slowly understood more about his true identity. But even then, they still slipped back into unbelief. Just like you and I will do so often. Mark says their hearts were still hard. I mean, just think of Peter, right? I mean, he had seen Jesus still that sea. A few chapters later in Mark 8, he would say to Jesus, you are the Christ, confessing him and his true identity. But later, what would Peter do? Out of fear for his own life, he would turn against Jesus and deny that he ever knew him. But maybe the disciples' fear was warranted. And just zoom ahead to the the end of Mark. All their fears seem to come true. Because they behold Jesus, not in glorious power, calming a storm, but in great agony, nailed to a cross. This man who had cast out demons, he'd raised the dead, he'd healed the sick, he'd shown himself to be God, he's crucified, he's killed. I mean, this Jesus for whom the nations were a mere drop in a bucket hangs helpless on a Roman cross. Was he helpless? Christian, here is where our faith should be its strongest. Here is where we look for answers to our unbelief and fear. Jesus was never more sovereign, never more in control than he was at that moment. On the cross, he was accomplishing the purpose for which he had come. He had come to die in our place and bring us to God. You see, Jesus didn't come just to show his power and give us a reason to fear him. Jesus came to give himself up to the power of his enemies so that we might be set free. That's the good news. That's why we gather together. You and I, we we have all broken God's law. 
We've actively turned away from him and sought our own fame and praise instead of his. And because of that, we deserve his just punishment for our sin. And because it's against God, that punishment is death. But on the cross, Jesus paid the debt each of us owed for our sin. He took that punishment, the punishment we deserved for our sin. He took that death that we deserved for our unbelief. He took it on himself. He died in our place. And then he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he, he rose from the grave so that anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him can be saved forever and given new life and eternal hope. So if you're here and you're, you're not a follower of this Jesus, come see what a marvelous Savior he is. Jesus doesn't promise to rescue us out of every storm in our lives. He doesn't promise us a turbulence-free flight but he has secured deliverance for us from our greatest enemy. He has crushed death for his people, and he invites you to trust in him this morning. You will never find true peace until you find it in him. And Christian, when you despair in your fear, when you struggle with unbelief and you doubt the mercy and power of your Savior, look no further than that cross the one who spread out his hands to calm the storm, is the one who gave his hands to be nailed to a cross so that you might be saved. The one who spoke, peace be still, cried out, it is finished, as he once and for all took all the punishment meant for us and crushed our fiercest enemy, securing for us eternal forgiveness, reconciliation to God. The disciples had asked, do you care that we're perishing? Yes, he did. All the way to the cross. So church, whatever your fears this morning, whatever the anxiety is running you into the ground, don't run to distraction. Don't run to entertainment or pleasure or anger. They will be poor refuges for your weary soul. Run to this Jesus. Behold your God. See how he took all your sin on himself. See how worthy he is of all your trust. See how he died to set you free from sin. See how he died to give you new life. See how he lives now before the throne of God to intercede for you in your fear. See how he is a compassionate savior who you can run to in times of need and despair. There is hope of turning away from sinful fear this week, but it's only because Jesus has borne all your sinful fear on himself and nailed it to the cross. So this week, meditate on that. Stand in awe of him. Cry out to him as a man will several chapters later in Mark's gospel. I believe. Help my unbelief. And as you do so, you will find yourself turning away from sinful fear. The late J.C. Ryle has written a reflection on, on this story of Jesus calming the sea. And he, he writes, I invite all who profess to call themselves Christians to take large views of Christ's power. Doubt anything else if you will, but never d doubt Christ's power. 
whether you do not secretly love sin may be doubtful. Whether you are not privately clinging to the world may be doubtful. Whether the pride of your nature is not rising against the idea of being saved as a poor sinner by grace may be doubtful. But one thing is not doubtful, and that is that Christ is able to save to the uttermost, and he will save you. Who is Jesus? What's his true identity? Jesus is God, and Jesus is our Savior. So let's behold him this morning in all his storm-calming power and sin-defeating mercy. Let's turn to this God. Let's turn away from lesser fears. Let's pray together. Our God, we stand in awe of you this morning. We humble ourselves before you. Forgive us for making you into a savior we can control. Lord Jesus, you who calmed the storm, we fear you. Lord Jesus, you who underwent the storm for us, we worship you. We believe. Help our unbelief. And we pray that you would be glorified in us as we turn to to repent of our sinful fear and to place all our trust and hope in you. And we pray this because of the precious blood of our Savior. Amen.